we're going to continue our joy of series through the book of Philippians. And um, it's just fairly providential that this week's sermon series falls exactly on Easter as we contemplate the humiliation and exaltation of Christ. The Apostle Paul, as we saw last week, after calling the Philippians to the joy of suffering, follows it up with this hymn before you. It's a song of worship. It's a song of rejoicing, if you will, in the humility of Christ. A humility asked that they, the Philippians, have as a part of the character of their community. It's a humility, he says, will give him joy, would complete his joy. And if this joy follows the rest of the joys in the book of Philippians, then this too will be a joy that is shared by them. And finally, and most importantly, it is a joy shared by God himself. The joy of humility. The joy of humility. Paul calls them, the Philippians, to be transformed in the way they treat one another. Not by simple description or instructions, but he calls them with this hymn in Philippians second chapter, he calls them to sing it, to experience it, to actually be transformed by the living truths of it. In worshipful reflection of Christ's humility. Christ's humbling of himself. To sing about and, and, and reflect on Christ's humbling for the benefits of us sinners. To sing about his vindicating exaltation by God. So we, this Easter morning, are encouraged like them. That the same mind, your scripture in the NIV says the same attitude of humility that was in Christ would be in us. And in that we would find comfort and security. And as the apostle Paul hopes for, joy. Paul calls us first to sing and reflect upon the fact that Jesus humbled himself. What's this mean? He gave up his divine rights. Look with me at verse six. It says, well, let's start at verse five. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. I want you to understand, it says here that he was in the very nature God, which means Christ, when he came to earth, he did not give up his divine nature. He was still God. One way of understanding that's kind of confusing is he was 100% divine and 100% human at the same time. No schizophrenia. The two were in one. But he gave up the divine rights in his coming to earth as a redeemer. In other words, he gave his divine ATM card, if you will. 
He gave it up to, 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 to come to earth as a redeemer. He gave his divine ATM card to God the Father. And he said, in light of the world's sin debt, in light of what must be paid for sin, and, and declared obedience to God's desire to save the world, Lord, Father, spend and use me as you must and as you will. To save sinners. I will do your will. Now of course Christ. of course, he, he knew the divine code. But he said Lord you spend me as you want. I give you my rights to accomplish the task. He was still the second person in the Godhead. God a very God. But he humbled himself. And gave his rights and his obedience to accomplish a task, whatever it would take to, to, to redeem mankind. To reconcile people like you and me, fallen man to God. And in humbling himself, he took on humanity. Look with me at verse 7. It says, but made himself nothing. He took the taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death and even death on a cross. Now, if we look back at verse seven and eight, we see these verbs. He made, he, 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 he took, he was found. What it's saying is Christ humbled himself. It was an action. He became a servant, the scripture says, which means he became one who was unlike what God would look like. He was like a human, one who has given ultimate say so to and for someone else. Understand when it says he became nothing, a servant is is nothing in this sense. They do what they are told for someone or something higher. Their very worth and, and dignity is wrapped up in doing what whoever is telling them to do it what, and doing what they say. Now, what is this thing? Did Jesus embrace the lowest level of humanity? In being a, some translations say, bond servant. In serving with a huge debt on his back. The debt of human sin. He served all of those who would be God's children. And in doing so, embraced it all. By being the lowest of human society. He came as a servant to the world and for God. The scripture goes on to say he was made in in human likeness. He became flesh, the the incarnation. He put himself in a position to, to hurt and to stink and to suffer and die like a human being. He took up mortality. He was able to be hit and bleed and feel like us by our hands and world. He felt the miseries. Of this life and heat and cold and hunger and pain. I remember the, the, the movie 
Superman, in, in one part of this movie, Superman, um, he, he gives up his life. He gives up his, 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 his power because he loves Lois Lane so much. And, and they go into this, um, diner and, and, and she's getting ragged by this guy and, and, and he goes up and he, and just for a minute, I think he forgets that he's no longer Superman and, 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 and he gets pummeled by this guy. And, and you kind of, it kind of does something in your mind because you're seeing the same person and this person's getting beat up and, and his face begins to bleed and he looks at the blood and he's just shocked. Understand what it must have been to be divine and see your blood flow. It says that he was found in appearance as a man. He was overlookable he was unimpressive he was excusable God walked the earth and he looked like just another carpenter and the humility and being found in appearance it was not like he was wearing a Halloween costume where it was fun for a little while to be human no he was treated like he was not who he was he was coming in the flesh meant that he was putting himself to be treated like he was not God yet his statements about himself were divine here he is in human flesh saying I am the resurrection and the life I am the way the truth and the life if you've seen me you've seen the father the son of man's going to come back in the clouds with the angels he was claiming to be God and yet when you saw him you couldn't get past the fact that he was in human skin the humility of saying something that was obviously to the eye not true he came across to, to many like a pure lunatic or a fool they looked at him and said what are you talking about you're not special as a matter of fact, when we see you next to your statements of, of, of divinity and, and you're the son of God and, and you forgive sin and you're going to come back with power, you are worthy to be humbled. You need to be humbled if you think you look like the Messiah. We spit on you. We, we put you in your place. We beat you. We, we need to get you back to your proper place because when we look at you, obviously it isn't, your, your place is obviously next, not next to God in heaven. Maybe a better place. Maybe next to a thief on a cross. How can I say it? Jesus suffered the humiliation of a divine racism. Like skin doesn't match his claims or inner being. He was worthy to be called names. He was lynch worthy. He was saying, look, I'm God. Look at me. And they're like, wait a minute. Look at your skin. Christ was prejudice against. How can I say it? Jesus was treated like and declared because of his parent appearance. When you think about his claims, God's civil rights, God put himself in a place where his civil rights would be abused. He was found in appearance as a man. 
Christ became the world's nigga, if you will. Treated badly because of the way he looked and it didn't match up with what people saw. Humbled himself. Lynch worthy. What we see though is he humbled himself in benefit for sinners. How? He was obedient to God. What does this mean that Christ submitted himself to the law, to doing God's will? So much so, he was obedient to the point of death. I want us to understand how we handle these things. We disobey God so that we can have better life. We will disobey for life and its pride and its vanity because it feels good or it may stop us from not having or it may stop us from being belittled or being poor or not smart or not being accepted into this group that won't last forever. And and oftentimes we obey only when we see it giving us life or pride or joy of life. We obey for self-righteousness. We obey because we want to look good in the eyes of others at the expense of others. Oftentimes we will obey and even use God as a means to our spiritual vanity. But Paul is saying this. He refused to do what could have kept him from the humiliation of life as a lowly, Human. He, he could have done what it took. If you look at scripture when Christ was, was tempted by Satan, he, he, he refused the pride and power and authority, the temptation of Christ to preserve himself or to get personal glory. He consented to obey God out of love for God, for the joy and glory of God, even though he saw that death and humiliation was at the end of it. The Bible goes on to say that he was obedient even to die on the cross, which means he was crucified as if he were disobedient. He took the conviction and shame of one who had broken every law of God in every possible way against God and in any relationship you could imagine or the world knows, Christ became the worst on the cross he took on the conviction and public shame before God and the world he took on every shameful and convicting thing your mind could imagine he took on the shame and conviction of the murderous pedophile don't you see he took the shame and conviction in being openly humiliated on the cross as as a drug using prostitute who abandoned or sold her children he took on the humiliation openly like a husband with a loving wife who cheats he took on the conviction and open shame like the neo-nazi leader or or like we've learned lately of a deranged gun-slinging teenager He took on the conviction that all you and I in the world has ever or could ever or would ever possibly know. And the big thing here is not only humiliation of the conviction. He was on a cross. Public shame. 
You ever seen when they they arrest somebody that they cover their head up because they don't want to see they don't want they don't want you to see them before they go in the courtroom? Well, well this is what happened. I can only imagine. Now, think about all that is sinful or sin affected by you. Think about what you hate about yourself or hate that someone has sinned or done against you and that you've hidden all your life. It was flaunted as true about him because of the shame of being crucified on the cross. It was a excuse me, it was a public display of humiliation. Of the public's humiliation by the hands of sinners in a sinful community. Why? Because he was crucified that sinners of all convictions before God of any kind of shame could be covered and forgiven and paid for by his atonement, by his making it right, by God's desires for sinners like you and me. He was crucified for the humility of a community tainted and shamed by sin. He was crucified for the humiliation of sin that is yours in the world so that whether in the light or it's in the closet, it could be taken away through and by him. He was crucified for the many ways you and I have been humiliated and shamed by evil and sinful things done to us that are in the dark or in the light. Why? So that sin would no longer humiliate us. That sin would no longer take our God-given dignity away. He was humiliated so that you and I no longer had to live under the weight and humiliation and loss of dignity that sin brings. That now those who look to and trust and confess him can be encouraged and find joy in Christ's humiliation on the cross. That sinners are no longer humiliated by sin, but humbled. Because for their sin and world, he is a savior. See, there is a, there is joy in this new humility that we're called to because he was exalted by God. Read with me these verses of exaltation once again. It says here in verse nine, therefore God exalted him to the highest place. And gave him the name that is above every name. That in the name of Jesus every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now this is a reference that is dependent and reflective of his resurrection. Let me tell you, he was not destroyed by sin. And thus its effects and now his sacrifice and his mission to redeem as redeem the world is made effective by him. You ever wonder who if you if you miss the game, you know, like a Super Bowl or something and you want to know who won. You don't even have to buy the newspaper, do you? You can go to the newspaper stand and look at the front page. And if you see some guy with a helmet smiling, you know that team won. What God is saying and exalting Christ in this hymn, what, what Peter, it, Paul is saying rather, is this hymn of exalt, exaltation, he, it doesn't even say resurrection, but this hymn of exaltation tells us that Jesus defeated death, that he rose, that the humiliation talked about 
through verse 8 has been reversed by his exaltation. That something happened. That when the cross, when he died on the cross, while he was exalted, he's sitting on the right hand of God the Father. He rose. Understanding what this hymn says, you don't get on the Wheaties box unless you have won something. And what God is doing in his exaltation, he's saying, I am putting Christ in his name on the world's Wheaties box forever. Because he accomplished the mission of reversing the sin result of humanity in in accord to God's desires. In other words, he rose from the grave. He rose from the grave. That sin and death could not hold him there. He's exalted as the world's savior and exaltation, therefore, out of accomplishment on the cross and his obedience to God to save and reconcile the world to himself. Sin, the death of sentence of it, did not condemn him. He got up from the grave. Giving him a name that that all knees bow and every tongue confess. He becomes the world's champion. He becomes the world's advocate. His place is the world's savior. It's a name that bridges heaven and earth that reaches heaven from earth and earth from heaven. That all forces seen and unseen, sin and Satan and everything in heaven and on earth must bow to the confession of his lordship. That all in you, in your heart, every idol, every tendency opposed to or keeping you from God, every good thing must find identity and proper place or destruction at the mention of his name. That if you confess him as Lord, every condemning and humiliating thing opposed to you as his child, everything that says you're not a child of God or everything that keeps you from it eventually must to his effectiveness and victory over sin and Satan and the grave. The world in Christ now has a savior. The, the mention of the name, now he's, he's, he's someone to call on. Man, I, I would love to call you for help, but what he's saying is someone to call on to reverse the effects of sin. Someone to go to war for you spiritually. Someone to give you a new life, a new power over all that humiliates and destroys. He's, his name is a new hope. He's the world's savior. Not only does the world have a savior, the world in Christ has a Lord. He is exalted as Lord. He is exalted and vindicated before the world in his resurrection and bodily ascension. And in his final coming and judgment, he is God. That there will be no more mistaking from how he was found when he walked the earth or when he was crucified. That every single person, all forces seen and unseen, will eventually know and bow. And say, Jesus is Lord. And none else. No other found in human form is God or Lord. And that all should worship and fear and tremble and write and sing hymns to or play songs for in no one else but him. He alone is God, a very God and, and the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus Christ is the world's Lord. 
And Paul is singing the praise of Jesus and calls the Philippians to ponder and be transformed individually and in community to love and serve one another in the joy of humility. But how? How does this truth transform us? It says right here, this is how you do it. Verse 5, your attitude should be the same of that as Christ Jesus. Your mind should be like Jesus's, right? That you should have the humility of a servant. What was Christ's mind? That he was sufficient. I'm going to flip the script a little bit here. That he was the world's savior. Let's go back to something we, we unfortunately overlook in this passage. And sometimes we overlook it when we're going through the Passion Week. We often highlight his humanity at the expense of his divinity. Now look at verse 6 again. Who being in very nature God. Jesus was in very nature God. He was simply found in appearance of a man. When he sweat and was sweared at and people spit at him, when he died, he was still God. His exaltation reading isn't a, okay, he did it, therefore he is God. No, that's not what this exaltation is saying. No, he is exalted as the means by which the world is saved and ruled. He is proclaimed and confirmed, confirmed before us. For God was never confused about who Jesus was. God gave him to us as an exalted Lord, as our champion to be our king where we didn't have one. To be exalted for us and towards us for our hearts and lives to grasp and transcend that Jesus is God and king of all. Now here's the point. He was all sufficient and assured. How can I say it? Jesus was God and he knew it. He came knowing that he was enough for the world. He himself went around saying, what? I am the truth, the way, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus was loved enough by his Father to be humbled, to do the task, to love and die for you and me. In turn, his identity, his worth, his calling was sure, and his humble actions prove it. He was enough. What does this mean for us? Let's go back here. It says here, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, verse 1, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility. Consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interest of others. What's it say? Be like Jesus. Humble yourself. Let others use you as a dignified doormat. Let them wipe their sins on you. Volunteer to be their personal tissue or napkin for their issues, for their tears. And then Paul says that would give him joy. Joy and humility. 
But I'm here to tell you, Paul will be sad then. Because this seems impossible. Now let's be honest, we all think the same way. I'm not enough for you, much less enough for myself. I can't heal my own scars, can't calm my own storms. I can't stop my own blood flow. I can't trust myself for myself, much less trust myself for your good. I mean, most of us live to stay on top. Most of us are competing for dignity and worth and attention. You earn it for yourself. And we, before people, we like to show off. And even before God, we are naturally consumed by making ourselves feel righteous and our lives secure. And if we're going to live in security, guess what? We have to watch our backs against you and them or anyone else who comes around wanting stuff. I mean, we much, we must watch our stuff. We must watch our time. We must watch our values because there isn't enough of whatever makes me feel secure and safe to go around and be shared and shave back and help you. I mean, come on. I need to stay on top of the moral heap. I mean, it's all I got or have yet to get. I must love myself because no one else will. But you better love yourself because... I am not enough. I don't have enough. I can't lose enough to be what I must be to you or myself. Subsequently, guess what? It's the opposite of Philippians. Our lives are empty and we're bound in hiding and hating. I mean, this describes everybody. We we like to hide. We hate. We hoard who we are, what we may have to offer. There is really no joy in loving one another, much less joy in humility. I'm sorry, Paul, you're going to be pretty sad. But Paul's call is couched in a hymn, a hymn that worships and exalts the mind and manner and method and person of Christ. And in calling him Lord and Savior, Paul is saying what Jesus knew about himself. Jesus was and is enough. Jesus was and is and will be sufficient for you and your call to one another in the world. And the call is clear then. Exalt Jesus. Lift him up. In Jesus' exaltation where where the world bows and confesses him, the Lord declares and humbles us with that obvious fact that he alone can and does heal you. He alone has and will save us and has earned and deserved what we cannot. The joy of humility is not first a joy that comes from how humble we can be. Or make ourselves or happy we can be trying to be humble. But the joy of humility is a call to find joy in the way he was humiliated for you. To joy in the way he has loved you. To joy in the way he's died for you. To joy in the fact that he rose for you. Let's look back at verse 1. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with his spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then do the things that are
are humbling and serving to one another. What is he saying? It's a call to revel around the cross. To come and look to the sacrifice of Jesus. To not try to humble ourselves, but find joy and sing songs and, and talk about it and eat the Lord's Supper and look at Jesus and what he has done and say, praise you, Lord, that what you have done, make it effective for me. To be humbled ourselves in the security that he is and will and be, be the Lord and Savior and gives us our worth. He alone vindicates our lives. What is the call to be filled with him so that and only that you can have enough in your weakness to love God and one another only as you've been loved and filled by this fact that the son of man came and he died on the cross for sinners like you and me. And he rose again on the third day just like he said. What is Paul saying? Let this truth be hammered in your hearts and in your lives. Eat from it from the Lord's table. Hear from it from the word of God. Share it with one another because if you don't have the gospel hammered in your heart, if you're not embracing the fact that you need Jesus very badly, that he's sufficient, that he's he's enough, then there is no joy and comfort. For your life. Come together. Individually and together to sing and pray and seek God. Be transformed to love and serve and be used for his sake. As a community who looks with joy at the cross. That we begin to sing. Oh Lord thank you for redeeming me. And I can look at the way you've been humiliated. And now I no longer have to live in humiliation. And now I'm free. To offer you as enough. I wish sometimes I could just give you the steps toward humility. But then I'd be telling you to do something the Lord has already done. I wish I could tell you to be happy about how humble and great you can be. And how much you can love and serve one another. But there is no joy unless you joy. And what Christ has already done for you. The Lord is risen and exalted to be enough for you and enough for me. What's the application for today? Let us sing and share in him together. Let's humble ourselves in worship of him. Let us be honest in the way we praise him and look to him. Let's be honest in light of the cross and the way he bled of our desperate need of him and his blood. Let us rejoice in the humility of Christ on the cross. Let us rejoice in his resurrection as our Lord and Savior. Let us lift him up. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, be exalted as enough for humanity's sin. Be exalted as enough to keep our identity sure in Christ. Be enough where we aren't enough in love for one another and humble our lives by a transforming truth that we 
are sinners. And Jesus, you're a savior for sinners. This we pray in his name, Jesus' name. Amen.